Turn your Bibles back to first chapter of Joshua this morning. Uh, today is a pretty special day for our, our church and for myself personally and my family. Uh, if you've not been attending our church for a while, uh, just a quick, quick update. Uh, pastor Wigan, our pastor of 29 years, retired. His last Sunday was last Sunday. And uh, this Sunday, August 5th, is my first Sunday. So it's an exciting time for, for, for us. We're thankful. We're, um, we're hopeful of what God has in store uh, for us together as a family of what God is going to do next. Um, not the easiest thing necessarily to, to uh, know what to preach on. Uh, the, day, the, the week after our, our longtime pastor has uh, retired, um, one of the things that uh, had kind of hit me a couple uh, a couple weeks ago is that you know, some, some of you certainly are, uh, and rightfully so, sad about uh, your pastor retiring. And uh, what kind of I realized at one point was that um, he's, he's my pastor too. <laughs> um, we, we were pastors together, that's absolutely true, but, but he pastored me and he pastored my family. And so um, we're, we're grieving with you in, in that way. But I thought of Joshua chapter 1, and uh, you'll see why in, in just a bit, or even as you heard it read. But as we come into Joshua chapter 1, we immediately see the connection, if we've been reading the, the biblical narrative, uh, between this book and the book that, that comes right before it. That's the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, the word Deuteronomy means second law, or the repetition of the law, really. Uh, the book of Joshua opens by overlapping the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it details for us the death of Moses. And so Joshua opens up with, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. So we find out right off the bat, even if you hadn't read Deuteronomy, if you're just coming into Joshua fresh, you know that the context is that Moses is dead. And Joshua is going to be the new leader. Now, uh, before we get too far here, I, I, I want to be clear um, I'm not drawing the dots too closely here, okay? Um, Pastor Wigan is not Moses, nor is he dead, right? I'm not Joshua. God did not verbally come to me and tell me that I'm the next leader for this church. That, that's, that's not the correlation that we're making here this morning. Additionally, you are not Israel, right? right? That's, not, that's not who you are. You're, you're the church, uh, we're not on our way to the, the promised land. This actually is a real-life historical narrative. This actually happened. This is history that we're reading this morning, right? That's, that's what we're reading. Um, and it's meant not to be simply um, a story for us to allegorize and take practical lessons from. That's not the only reason for it, okay? However, there are practical applications that we can make. And the truth is, is that like Israel, their longtime leader is no longer leading them. And we can relate with that. And like Joshua, he is new to a, a, a leadership position of a people he had been with. That sounds very similar to our situation. Additionally, the Israelites still had stuff to do. Their, their, their life didn't end with, with, with Moses. Just because Moses wasn't around anymore doesn't mean that the Israelites just stopped doing anything. They still had, had a mission and still had things to do. So too do you and I. Back to the text. The first nine verses of Joshua 1, we see that the Lord calls Joshua to lead. 
Uh, and this call is accompanied by three divine promises that we'll see in verses 3, 4, and 5. After that, in the next three verses, four verses, we see that God calls Joshua to courage, be strong and courageous. And along with that call, he gives three divine assurances. First, the call to lead in verses 1 and 2. Let's read those again, actually starting in verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, rise, go over this Jordan, Jordan River, you and all this people into the land I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Now, again, Moses, their leader of some 40 years, is dead. He is gone, right? He is not on, uh, on the premises anymore. He will not be leading them any longer. Uh, Israel is on the brink of inheriting the promised land. And we learned back into the, to the previous narrative of Moses that he is not allowed to go in because of his sin, of his choice of not speaking to the rock, but striking the rock, uh, as God had told him to do. But after decades of wandering in this wilderness, and, and, and years and years and years of the fulfillment of this land, which goes all the way back to Abraham, the Israelites are, are on the brink. They're on the brink of inheriting this, this long-awaited promise. And so as you read the book of Joshua, you should sense a bit of anticipation, a bit of excitement, a bit of longing that the people of Israel might have to get into this land. And it's under these circumstances that God calls Joshua to lead his people. He had been with Moses for a while. If we can go all the way back to Exodus chapter 32, and they're on the mountain. And God is meeting with Moses and giving him the Ten Commandments. And the Israelites are, are doing what they did with the golden calf. And we find out in that narrative that the person up on the mountain with him was Joshua. Multiple times he's called Joshua's assistant. He has been following Josh, Moses. And now it's his, time, it's his time to lead. Joshua had been chosen to succeed Moses to lead the people into the land. And for all their complaining that they did about their leader, and the Israelites did, did a lot of complaining about Moses, even though in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 8, we find out that they weep and they mourn for Moses for 30 days. It was a big deal to lose their leader, right? And they, they recognized that. But you can kind of imagine what Joshua may have felt following in the footsteps of Moses. And now he gets the proverbial baton handed to him, and he is called to lead the people to this land that has been given. Note the language. He's given. God has given this land to the people. This is grace. God gave them something they don't deserve. Now, they, were, they needed to take it, but he was giving it to them. They did not deserve it. It was not earned by their hands, but by God's. And with this call, he gives three divine promises. And we'll go through these quickly. In verses 3 and 4, we find that he gives them the territory. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread, this is verse 3, I have given you just as I promised Moses. Right, so I, I promised Moses that, that you would get this land, and I'm keeping the promise. You're going into the land, and everywhere your foot goes, the sole of your foot goes you will have it. And he goes on to give them more uh, specifics of that territory. And this isn't a worldwide domination. Right? He's not saying every literal place you ever go. He's talking about the place that he had prepared for them. 
the place that he would send them, this land that he had set out for them. The second thing we see promised is a victory. In verse 5a, it says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Uh, the Lord promised Joshua certainty that th they would inherit the land and that no one would stop them. They would not be stopped. No one could stop them. Imagine getting that plan, getting that promise. You will not be stopped. No, no one can stop you. You're invincible. <laughs> Imagine what, what that might encourage you, how much that might stiffen you, your spine and cause you to say, Let, let's go, man. I'll run through a brick wall. Like, this is going to happen. What God promises, he fulfills. And he promised the, the children of Israel, the land, and he promised them victory. Number three, in the rest of verse five, just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. The Lord promised to be with him. Now, now listen, listen again to the I wills. There's two. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon says this, Oh, I love God's shalls and wills. There is nothing comparable to them. Let a man say shall, what is it good for? I will, says a man, and he never performs it. I shall, he says, and breaks his promise. But it is never so with God's shalls. If he says shall, it shall be. And when he says will, it will be. So God is saying to Joshua, just like Moses, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. That should sound like familiar language. We'll get there in a bit. In light of Joshua's situation, God promises, God promises his presence. And this promise makes all the difference, right? Wouldn't it make all the difference for you too? If you knew that no matter what was coming your way, that God was with you, that he would never leave you, that he would never forsake you. It made the difference for Joshua. It encouraged and strengthened Joshua like nothing else could. And upon these promises of his presence, he now calls Joshua to be of good courage. Here we see a threefold command for Joshua to be strong and courageous. You can see it in verse 6, in verse 7, and verse 9. It's a repeated threefold call. Be strong and courageous. These words are actually kind of similar. They're not that much different. And they appear frequently together. Uh, which tells you that there's a connection between the two. But just for the sake of definition, when we say strong, we need to be established or to withstand, uh, to fortify or to be stout, to strengthen, to grow firm. When we say uh, courageous, we need to be alert, uh, to make strong, to be steadfastly minded, to establish, to be bold, be brave, Courage is not about being a macho. It's not some uh, exclusively masculine uh, idea. Uh, courage, as one pastor says, is not the absence of fear, but the, the absence of self. 
Courage is not the absence of fear, but the absence of self. Now, this might make you think about maybe some heroic behaviors or heroic acts of, of policemen or, or, or firemen. Or just a couple months ago in, in Paris, you saw that video, the guy who scaled the, the four, uh, four flights or four stories of a, an apartment building to rescue a, a, a child hanging off the, the balcony. Nobody? Google it. It's pretty crazy. He, 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 like, he literally climbs from balcony to balcony all the way up. Um, pretty amazing stuff. Pretty heroic stuff. Uh, what, what we might refer to as courage. But, but here, Joshua needed courage um, to do all that God had called him to do. He, he couldn't know what God had called him to do. He couldn't know what was coming. He didn't know what, what all was in, in store for him and for the people. And so God is calling him to be courageous. And whereas courage is the absence of fear and of self, we should also understand this, that the, the courage that we're talking about is not just the absence of fear or, or not just the not absence of fear and self. It's, it's the presence of God. And that's actually what God does here. If you look at verse 5, look at verse 5. It says in the second part, just as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will never, I will not leave you nor forsake you. Okay? So he's promising his presence. And then the very next thing is be strong and courageous. So it's upon his presence that he is saying, he is calling him to be strong and courageous. Why could you be strong and courageous? Because I am with you. Right? So courage is the presence of God in our life. God's presence is the foundation of courage. And then the Lord connects these commands, these, this threefold command, with three assurances or three divine assurances. And the first one is, is a promise. The Lord commands Moses, excuse me, Joshua, to be strong and courageous. The verse goes on. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Verse 6. God's call to courage is connected with his assurance that the land would be inherited by God's people. So be strong and courageous. What I said is going to happen. I promised the land. You can be sure of it. You can be assured of it. God was reaffirming the completion of this promised land that would have been unrealized at that time. And we, we look back and see how God provided the land. They hadn't had the land yet. It was merely a promise. It was merely a, something that God had said. They had not taken hold of it as of yet. And though God made the promise, they would need to actually show courage. They would actually need to show strength. They would actually need to fight. In order to be successful as God had told them to be, they would still have to obey. They would still have to go. So strength and courage would still be absolutely necessary. The second assurance is through the word. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law of Moses, my servant, commanded you. Uh, this second statement, to be strong and courageous, is not just a repetition of the first. We actually see two additional words, two qualifying words, Right? Only be strong and very courageous to do all that the law of Moses commanded. What, what, is he, what is he saying here? He's saying, yes, it'll take courage to fight and inherit the land. But you know what else takes strength and courage? To actually obey God. 
to actually follow the word of God, to actually do what the Bible says. Some of us would much more rather fight. We'd rather put our fists up than actually lay down our, our, our wills according to the will of God. Following the Lord actually takes courage. It actually takes strength. Courage is necessary to obey God's word. It's necessary to follow the written word of God, to do what it says, to walk in the way of Jesus, to actually believe that the Bible is God's word. That takes strength and courage, which is not always acceptable, right? It never has been, by the way. Sometimes we we think that now Christianity is so much less accessible than ever. Well, maybe at some points in history, but let's just remember when Christianity came into being, People were being killed because of it. Literally, right? Jesus died. Paul was persecuted. The disciples, all but one, were martyred, right? It's never been acceptable. In in some countries, it's been more acceptable for a period of time. Maybe in our country, country, it's becoming less so. But it takes resolve to follow Jesus It takes resolve to follow his word. And the Lord here ties obedience, obeying God's word to good success and prosperity. Look at it again in verse 7. Be careful to do according to the law of Moses, my servant has commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Prosperity or prosperous or, or good success here has to do with accomplishing satisfactorily what is intended. And what is being intended here? That they inherit the land. That's the prosperity that he's talking about. Okay? Now, sometimes we we, we talk about prosperity in a different context, but God is is saying to them, your prosperity, the, 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 the success of the people, is based on you following me. There is a condition here. The condition is, you do as I say, and it'll go well. You don't, and it won't. That would be the implication. We see it again in verse 8. If you look all the way down, it says, for then you will make your way. That's if you do what the first part of verse 8 says. God's people would need strength and courage to obey. The Lord goes on in verse 8. We want to see three things in verse 8 that, that he points out of how they actually can do this. What does this actually look like? The first one, read in verse eight, look look with me. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. We've been going through Proverbs on Sunday nights here. And this sounds very much like Solomon talking to his son. Don't don't let the word of God depart from you. Put it around your neck. Don't, Don't miss it. Don't neglect it. Don't forget it. Don't let it slip. Remember it. Don't let it depart from your mouth. Secondly, you shall meditate on it day and night. If you're familiar with the Psalms, this sounds very similar to many Psalms of meditating on the law, meditating on the word of God day and night, continually. Meditating means to to think it over, to ponder, to contemplate. It's not not a a brief look, look at it and go. It's actually to think it over. Whether it's at that moment or throughout the day, the point is that you're thinking through what the, the word says. And thirdly, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Obedience is doing. 
right? It's actually doing. Sometimes we, we say we're following Jesus, but we're not doing anything that he said. That's not the same thing. To say that you're following Jesus and not do what he said is not following Jesus. So when Joshua is told, do, be careful to do all that is written, it wouldn't have been good enough for him to say, okay, yes, and never do it. That's not good enough. We have a lot of people who are living that way. They make verbal assent to something, but they never live it out. There's no fruit of it. And if you continue reading in the book of Joshua and you move into verses 10 and following, we find that he does do what he's told. And the people agree to to hear the word and to follow him. Neither delayed nor partial obedience is actually obedience at all. Be careful to do according to all that is written. The Lord concludes with one last assurance in verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God seemed to understand the importance and the necessity for Joshua to know Uh, to be assured of, to be guaranteed that God's presence was with him in this endeavor, in this next step, in this this responsibility of leading these people, it was important for God to reiterate again, as he did in verse 5, that he would be with him. He tells him, don't be frightened and don't be dismayed. He doesn't tell him, don't be frightened and don't be dismayed because there aren't things to be frightened about. There are things to be frightened about. Some of us are more frightened by things than other people, right? Things like animals, right? So here's the point. It's true that there are things that that frighten us. But what God is saying here is you don't have to be afraid. Why? Because I am with you. What's the point? The point is, the presence of God is the remedy to our fear. The presence of God is the remedy to our fear. Are you afraid today? Are you afraid of what's going on in the world today? Are you afraid about your health or the health of someone else? Are you afraid about the decisions someone else is making? It's not that we don't feel the weight and concern for those things, but even in that, God is saying, don't be dismayed about that. Why? Because God is here. God is God. Isaiah chapter 41 says, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. God's not some distant being. He's here. He is with you. Romans 8 goes on to say that he's for us. Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, and he's quoting here from Isaiah 1, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Just as the Lord was with Moses, so he was with Joshua. Just as the Lord was with Joshua, Will he be with us? Yes, he will. And as we step into this next chapter as a church, we can be assured that God is with us. 
that God has not left us. He's not departed from us. He's not forsaken us. As you go through tribulation and trial in your life, when something bad comes up, when something uh, of a measure of suffering happens in your life, you can be assured of one thing. There are many things we don't know about why suffering comes into our life, right? But here's one thing you, you can know. It's not because God left you. It's not because God is, is forsaking you. That is not the reason. The only thing worse than suffering is meaningless suffering. If God is with you, then nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. None of your suffering, none of your tragedy, none of your hardships will be wasted. We can know that God is with us wherever we go. We, we're not ready to cross the Jordan River, I don't think, or the Cass River for that matter. We're not, we're not going to go storm the, the walls of Jericho. Like that's, that's not what we're doing. Like that's probably not what we're doing, I don't think, right? But no matter what it is, God wants Joshua to know that he's with him. And he wants you to know that he is with you as well. Do you know that? Are you assured of that this morning? Because the truth is, here's the truth. Sin has entered the world. In Genesis chapter 3, we find out that sin entered the world. And, it, and sin separates. And from the, from the moment that sin is separated, there's this, this hope, this longing to be brought back to God. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see the first gospel, or the proto-evangelium. That's the Latin. First gospel. And it's here where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He's talking to Satan here. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, the offspring coming and crushing the head of the serpent while the serpent bruises the heel of the, of, of the offspring. What's that? That's the death of Jesus. His resurrection is the victory over Satan. In Isaiah chapter 7, 14, we find out this promised one is called Emmanuel. And then after 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament, that's Malachi, to the beginning of the New Testament, that's Matthew, when no divine revelation was given, in comes Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, and he is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right? Get it. God came to be with us. That's John 1:14. He came to be with us to take us to be with him. Right? That's the mission of God. <clears throat> it's the redemptive mission of God. And in a moment, we're going to observe the Lord's table. And before us are the bread and the cup. And those symbols, those are symbols. And they are symbolizing for us the body and the blood of Jesus, who is Emmanuel, who is God with us, who came to take us to be with God and left. To, and when he left, he gave us his spirit until he comes again and we are with him finally and fully. Friends, it is in response to the gospel, the work of Christ, that through repentance and faith, we can know God, know his saving work in our life, and know his presence. So that you can say today that God is with you. That's how we can have the confidence. Because God came for us. Not because we deserved it. Like the Israelites, not because they deserved it. Because God, in grace, 
came. God in grace gave his presence to Joshua, and God in grace gives his presence to us today. Brothers and sisters, we are not alone. God is with us. Therefore, we will not fear. Let's pray together as I pray if the ushers could come. Father, we are thankful this morning that with great confidence, we can say that you are with us. That has nothing to do with our, our uh, great spirituality or with our, uh, our obedience even, really. It has to do with the work of God on our behalf through Jesus. And so as we come to this table, Lord, we are asking that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly, love him more deeply, and worship him more fully. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.